There was a uh, man who was traveling. He went to New York City. He was from out of town. He had dinner that night. And on his way back to the hotel, across the street from his hotel, he saw a sign in the window that said Chinese laundry. So he made a mental note. The next day he got up, took his laundry across the street in a bag, put it on top of the desk. And uh, the man behind the desk said, what's this all about? And he said, uh, this is my laundry. I hear the Chinese laundries are like, great. And so uh, I'm just dropping it off. I'll pick it up later. The man said, this is not a laundromat. This is a sign shop. You saw the sign, Chinese laundry. That's because we do signs. That's one of many signs that you saw. Now, on the bulletin, it says Ocean Hills Church. And we have that sign. And people look at it and go, okay, this is a church. What are they about? And there are certain expectations that people have when they see that sign. And you know what happens? People come with their own laundry, their own dirty laundry, so to speak, and they drop it off. This is a church. I need cleansing. I need healing. I need love. I need forgiveness. I need acceptance. I need teaching. I need molding. But we can send out the wrong message. Many times churches do that. They have the sign that says church or the cross that is a symbol of God's love and forgiveness. But there's not much love, acceptance, forgiveness that goes on. So we want to send out the right message. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we've been studying Nehemiah. We're already in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, there's a verse I'm going to go back to tonight. In verse 6, so we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. If you've ever been to a Billy Graham crusade or you've watched it on television, he will often say to the new believers, those who come forward to receive Christ at the end of his crusade or broadcast, he'll He'll say, and be sure to go to church this Sunday. He always has that. Be sure and go to church this Sunday. In the New Testament, the word church is found 118 times. Never once does it refer to a building, even though that's how we usually refer to it. I'm going to the church today or tonight. That's just part of our culture. Nothing wrong with that. We're probably not going to change that. But in the Bible, never once does it refer to a building. It always refers to, as you know, a group of people. Originally, the term had no spiritual connotation whatsoever. It was a secular word. In fact, it was a word the Greeks used to speak of a public assembly of Greek citizens that would come out of their homes and gather in a place. They called that the ecclesia, the assembly of gathered citizens. As time went on, the word became specialized to mean a legislative body or a judicial body, a jury, that would decide cases, that would adjudicate cases for a town. That was the ecclesia. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. The word itself... It comes from two different words put together. Ek, which means out from. 
kaleo, which means to call. So if you put it together, it means to call out from. So with that word, we get a little working definition of what the New Testament regards as church. Ekaleo, to call out from. So it is a group of people called out of our community to form a new community. We are called out from our society to form a new society, and we gather together for a common goal. So here's my question tonight. What is the goal? What is the purpose? Why do we meet? Why do we do this church thing? What is the purpose of the church? What would typical answers be? Let's just hear from you. What would a typical answer be of what's the purpose of church? Worship. Give glory to God. What's that? Fellowship. Prayer. Save souls. All good answers. Are there any more? A hospital for the sick. That's good. So it's not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. All of those are are good definitions. Some people would say, if we were to kind of put all of those together, the church is to be a place where certain things occur. Prayer, praise, worship, um, ritual. Even Protestants have rituals. We do worship a certain way and we uh, give announcements and then we have a Bible study. And and, uh, so we... Look at that as a place. We need a place so we can gather together and practice these um, important rituals, praise, worship, etc. However, if you remember, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they had a place and they gathered and they worshipped and they praised and they even had times in the Word, but that wasn't enough for the Lord at certain points in their history because they violated something deep inside the heart, didn't they? There wasn't something going on of pure relational value to the Lord. They went through all of the rituals, all of the ceremonies. Everything was outward, and it wasn't quite enough. Other people would say, well, I think church should be a place where you make people feel good. You encourage them. You know, they're beat up enough. They ought to come to a place where you're going to say nice things to them and make them feel very, very good. There's nothing really wrong with that except before you feel good, you have to feel bad. Now, listen carefully. It's called the good news, isn't it? But before somebody receives the gospel, you have to tell them the truth. Okay, you're a sinner. You are separated from God by nature and by choice, and you need redemption. Unless a person hears the bad news, they'll never come around to receiving the good news. So, yeah, it's a place of feeling good, but you got to feel bad about being a sinner before you feel good about calling on the Savior. Then you could have a, another idea that the church is to provide an environment for seekers to find God. The only problem I see with that, well, I see a couple problems. Number one, nobody seeks God. Did you know that? The Bible says there's no one who seeks God, not one. So we might say, well, I'm a seeker. Well, no, you're not. God is the seeker. He is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, it doesn't mean that there are churches, by the way, that call themselves seeker-friendly. And I don't think we should go out of the way to be seeker 
unfriendly. Yeah, we're not seeker friendly. We're just mean to everybody. (laughs) We ought to be filled with love. We ought to be friendly. We ought to be friendly to the seeker or the non-seeker, the sinner or the saint. Some would say, as I heard, well, the church is a place where you call people to salvation. It's where you get saved. And yes, that's true, but it is secondary. Primarily, the church gathers to glorify God and to minister to one another. It's not primarily a place for unbelievers. Now, if unbelievers happen to be present and be eavesdropping on our worship to God, that's great. We're not going to tailor it around them. It's for God and for his people. At the same time, I'm always an advocate of throwing out the net as often as we can because things happen. By the way, last Sunday, this last Sunday, it's second service. We gave the altar call and the whole front was filled with people. It was a wonderful time. But it was after we had a Bible study that fed the body of Christ. So, Jesus Christ came to this earth to build his church a new society. I gave you three words a year ago, and I don't know if everybody here was here a year ago, but they mark the vision statement of this church, upreach, inreach, and outreach. Let me explain briefly. I won't belabor it. It's all on tape. Upreach, inreach, outreach. We exist, according to Scripture, to glorify God, number one, to edify one another, number two, to testify of God's goodness to the world, number three. And it's always in that order. I exist to glorify God when I gather together with you to edify and build you up. And number three, to be equipped to testify to the world of the love of Jesus Christ. So God saves people when we gather together sometimes, but that's just the beginning, isn't it? What God is all about is establishing from those saved individuals a community, a family. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, I bow my knee before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. So it was never enough in Jesus' mind to call an individual out of darkness and into the light, but then once he has them, to weave them together into a family. Now, whenever we gather together, whenever the Spirit of God calls us out of the world and and puts us together in an assembly where there's true commitment to one another, and I mean sacrificial commitment, where it costs us something, there is transformation. That is why the church will never, ever be irrelevant when it operates authentically. Because the more and more we live in a culture that is technologically driven and is more and more impersonal, being personal together and that touch and that love and that counsel and that communion will never go out of style. People crave for it. We're called out as a family. Now, this requires to be a part of his church. You could say, well, I belong to a church. To be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, authentically his body on the earth, requires a shift in thinking. Let me explain. In our Western culture, it is all about the individual, not the group. My private rights, my right to privacy. I am an individual. I demand a certain respect. I found an ad in Psychology Today. You wouldn't be surprised by that. 
that said this, I love me. I love me. It goes on. I am not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself. And I like to do whatever makes me feel good. That's just like a little baby. I love me. I'm not conceited. I just want to make me feel good. Well, if we grow up that way, it develops a byproduct of our culture called loneliness. It doesn't help bridge the gap. It widens the gap when we live as individuals. Now, there's something interesting that I've discovered about us evangelicals. We have exalted a phrase, and it's, it's a good phrase. I use it quite frequently. It helps explain to unbelievers what it is to be a Christian. It's called a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard that phrase? Have you ever used that phrase? You know what's interesting? You'll never find it once in the Bible. In any translation, and I've taken the most uh, earthy level all the way to the high level, and I did a search. You'll never find that word phrase ever once in the Bible, though it is a concept that is biblical. And this is what I want to explain. We exalt that phrase, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we take it sometimes to mean private relationship with Jesus Christ. This is my own personal private relationship. Can I tell you something? No such thing. We are meant to be dependent on God and interdependent on one another. There's no such thing as a private little relationship with God. That's where you get people who say, I don't need the church. I don't believe in organized religion. I just worship God under a rock or under a tree or out in the woods. And Okay, you can worship God anywhere. You don't need a building to do it. We know that. We've established that. And people will often ask, can I be a Christian without going to church? Well, technically, yes, because it's a commitment to God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that's sort of like being a soldier without an army. Or how about a tuba player without an orchestra? You ever heard of tuba by itself? No offense if you're a tuba player. It's boring. Doesn't sound good unless you have accompaniment of other notes. Sort of like being a bee without a hive. To be a Christian without an assembly that meets together frequently. The cure for that byproduct of society called loneliness, I believe, is what God intended in the church. See, Proverbs 18, and I read it afresh this morning. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire... He rages against all wise judgment. Okay, where did this concept of community begin? It began with God himself. I believe the purest form of community is found before you and I, before mankind, before Adam and Eve were ever created. In the Godhead, in the Trinity, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was this inner Trinitarian relationship, love, and communication that was so satisfying that God didn't want to keep it to himself. We read that in Genesis 1. When God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And the text says, so in the image of God made he man. 
There's the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoying that bliss and fellowship and satisfaction of that triunity, not wanting to keep it to themselves, but to expand it. Let's make other creatures with volition in our likeness, in our image, and spread that fellowship around. And, and once God put man upon the earth, because we are in the image of God, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper that's comparable for him. There had to be a community, a place of relationship building in the body of Christ, in the family, and in the family of God. When Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 to his father, he reveals that relationship that he had with his father. Remember what he said? That they may be one as we are one. I in you, Father, and you in me, that they may be one in us. We are enjoying this wonderful communication and interdependence in the Godhead that they may have that same kind of unity. Okay, we've established that. Now, there's some, there's some problems. There's some uh, hindrances to that. There's some pressures in our society that fight against this idea of church uh, pressure number one, uh, mobility. People are moving in our culture. 20% of Americans move every year. 20% of the population relocates. So it's hard with that for roots to go deep down for a long period of time. And what's even more distressing is people will try church for six months or a year and then pull out and try church for six months and a year somewhere else and then pull out. And they keep doing this. It's sort of like if you were to put a plant in your front yard and then after you know a few weeks, you go, I don't like it there. I'll put it in the side yard. And then after a few months, I don't like it there. I'll put it in the backyard. I don't like it there. I'll put it in my neighbor's yard. <laughs> You're going to have to call the plant ambulance soon. It's going to go into root shock. It needs to be rooted and planted and committed for a period of time. So mobility can do that. We live in a culture with many casual contacts and few close friends. It always disturbs me when I ask a Christian, how many Christian friends do you have? Well, I have a few friends. How many Christian friends do you have? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Not very many. That's dangerous. You need a root system, as uh, Donald Joy said, somebody holding your trampoline when you bounce up and down. So mobility. Number two, technology. The computer age is upon us. In fact, let's go back behind, past the computer age. A lot of problems, this is going to sound kind of corny, maybe even naive, started when they automated garage doors. <laughs> now think about it. You get in your car, so you're in a bubble. It's your own thing going on, your own temperature, your own music. And you drive around in that bubble, and you go through your neighborhood, and you push a button, and up goes your moat. You know, it's like a private moat to your castle. You drive into the castle, close it, and you're sealed up. How many of us know our neighbors really well? How many people on your street do you know really well? Technology, mobility, and here's another hindrance to this community. Materialism. Stuff. We live in a culture where we're defined by how much stuff we got. Have you seen my new stuff? Pretty cool stuff, huh? And it's all about our stuff, and we carry our stuff with us. It is a veneer we put around us that we think protects us or gives us status. All it does is isolate us. 
It serves to make a difference between us and somebody else. So, yes, you can worship God anywhere at any time. But there is a special place. In fact, there is a special building that God meets his people in. And the building is when we gather together. Now, the building is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are. You are individually and you are corporately. Now, a lot of us would say, well, I am the temple. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are the temple. But don't get the idea that we're supposed to be a bunch of little independent temples running around the landscape. And we don't need each other. You've got it wrong. Listen to it put so eloquently in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in the Spirit. That's the building where God has a special time of meeting with his people. It's not a bunch of little temples doing their own thing. It's when the church, the people, gather together and there's the visible, living assembly of saints together. As soon as you, uh, as soon as you isolate yourself from that, you're in trouble. It's like the pastor who went to a guy who was in his community and he walked over to his house and there was the man sitting all by himself in front of a fire with coals. And the pastor said, you know, friend, I don't see a church much. In fact, I see you very rarely, only occasionally. I wish you'd come all the time. And the guy had all sorts of excuses why he couldn't come. And uh, the pastor took the coals that were burning on the fire and separated them all in his presence until they died out because they weren't touching each other. He said, that's what you've done. As soon as you isolate yourself from other believers, the fire goes out. You want the fire to burn brightly? Do what the Bible says. Assemble, and it says in Hebrews, more frequently as you see the day approaching. The day of the Lord approaching. Evil times upon us. The frequency of gathering together and the importance of it. I'm going to read you one final scripture in Ephesians 4. Verses 15 and 16. I'm reading in the New Living Translation, so if you're going to open it up in the New King James, King James, NIV, NASB, or any of the others, you'll probably go, huh? So let me just read it to you. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 in the New Living Translation. You are becoming more and more in every way like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Here's my bottom line line point. On this ship called the church, nobody's a passenger. We're all crew. We're all crew members Nobody's a passenger. I'm a strong advocate in layman's liberation. Do I need to be a pastor to serve God? Listen, 
I know a lot of people who serve God better than a lot of pastors who are lay people. You've got a set of gifts, uniquely your own, set of talents, likes, dislikes, uniquely your own. You are who God made you. You are who you uh, are formed by your environment, etc. All of us come to the table with baggage. All of us have flaws. All of us have strengths. If, if you look at the church very honestly, we're a bunch of sinners gathered together. One of those sinners is called Pastor Skip. We've all been saved by God's grace, and we're all learning what it is to walk with God. We're on this journey. And in that, we're learning to get along with each other. And we're learning where we fit. But it takes the work of all of the members fitted together. So my challenge is find out where you fit. And so that's why we're having a ministry fair, because as the church grows, ministries are being developed. And there's ministry heads who are going to be at these tables. And uh, we're just going to ask you to take some time and mull around. When it's 8.30, I hope you have a watch. When it's 8.30, um, we're going to uh, ask you to mark that and get your children so that we don't keep the teachers, you know, like you're out at coffee or something and your kids are still being watched in the classroom. We're going to ask you to go get your kids at the normal time, 8.30. But it gives you um, 15 or 20 minutes um, time. That should be probably enough time to peruse the tables and and get information and ask about involvement. And you know what it is? Try a few different things. Try a few different of the ministries, whether it's a couple's ministry or it's uh, the um, Team Elijah or the media ministry. There's just so many of them, and they're all represented inside and out. And just get to know us. Get to know one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this great time of um, learning, challenge, worship, praise. Lord, we have been reminded of the profound nature of the body of Christ to have two brothers from the other side of the world sharing with us tonight these musicianaries who have come and have sung great songs of praise. And we're reminded that though we come from different cultures, and languages and backgrounds, you've made us one in Christ. And that is a a profound and wonderful truth. What a great family to be a part of, Lord. Thank you for your plan. And we're encouraged because our Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you for that promise. It's great to be part of that kind of an outfit, Lord, where we have such a wonderful, strong, commanding officer. And so, Lord, we're your crew. What do you want us to do, Lord? How are we to be involved? How can we commit to one another and grow strong ties of friendship? We don't want to be isolated or be alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.